0: Good morning all right, so church is sparsely populated it 's more like a Bible study, <laughs> perhaps a Tuesday or a Thursday Bible study than a Sunday morning message but that's all right uh, there are different seasons uh, in the calendar and uh, this is a great season isn't it I love this season I love because there is some kind of a cold thing in the air, and uh, not just that it reminds me a lot about about how I used to celebrate Christmas when I was a kid, you know. So it brings a lot of memories, uh, makes me nostalgic. So this is a beautiful season. I'm sure it does uh, some of you as well. So today, uh, we'll just take a break from, only for this month, we'll take a break from Ecclesiastes and we'll probably look at uh, a passage on Christmas. And one of the dangers of looking at a passage like this, even for me as a speaker, is that uh, it is so familiar to all of us. We would have read this over and over again. And we would have heard a lot of sermons from it. Uh, And so I haven't concentrated much on the application on purpose because most of the applications are foregone conclusions for this. But I look at the historical detail and all of that and perhaps bring out a little application uh, from uh, this particular passage that was read out to us by by Ronnie. Thank you, Ronnie, for that. Can you all hear me, Siji? Are you hearing me? (laughs) Okay. All right. Uh, The talk show host, Larry King, uh, he's done a lot of uh, talk shows on CNN, and uh, he was once asked this question, a personal question. He was asked, Mr. King, if you were to select one person from across history to interview, one person from across history to interview, who would that be? And Larry King, without any hesitation, he said, I would like to interview Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And uh, Larry King was asked, if you were to ask him just one question, what would that be? And Larry King said, I would ask him the question, are you indeed virgin born? Are you indeed virgin born? And Larry said, the answer to that question will define all of history to me. The answer to that question will define all of history to me. Because if he were indeed virgin born, and he was, then it means that God has somehow invaded history. This is a miraculous conception. This is a miraculous birth, one that we cannot neglect, one that has enormous ramifications for this planet Earth. You know, just this morning, I switched on the iPad just to make some notes about my sermon this morning, and uh, it flashed the date on my face, implicitly stating that the birth of Jesus Christ was so important that it divided history into two parts. Everything that has ever happened on this planet either falls in one of these two categories, before Christ or after Christ. You know, the skeptic W.E.H. Lecky, he said this about Jesus. He said, the character of Jesus has not only been the highest pattern of virtue, but the longest incentive in its practice, and has exerted so deep an influence that it may be truly said that the simple record of three short years of active life has done more to regenerate and to soften mankind than all the disquisitions of philosophers and all the exhortations of moralists. He says the character of Jesus was so beautiful, was so uh, appealing, that... The record of three short years of life has done more to regenerate mankind, has done more to produce uh, a change in mankind and transform mankind than all the disquisitions of philosophers and all the exhortations of moralists. Undeniably, Jesus lived an exemplary life, and he made extraordinary and audacious claims about himself. They're profound, and yet they are very, very reasonable because of who was making the claims, When we read some autobiographies, particularly of people who preceded us, we only get to know about their moral failures and their frailties, and they're not distinct from us. But this man, Jesus, was entirely distinct. He was just like one of us and yet completely different from us. And so, as the world celebrates Christmas this week, there are some basic questions that we need to ask this morning. To get a fresh look about who Jesus is and about what Christmas is as well. To get a fresh look about who Jesus is and about what Christmas is as well. So some basic questions arise in our minds. Firstly, why was Jesus born? Which incidentally is the title of my message. Why was Jesus born? Or given the fact that he was born sometime around December and we'll get to that. If Jesus came to reveal God to us, then what do we learn about God from that first Christmas? If Jesus came to reveal God to us, if Jesus is God in flesh, then what does that reveal about God or what does the first Christmas reveal about God? What do we learn about God from this first Christmas? Now Matthew answers all these questions well. Like I said this morning, Matthew presents Jesus as a king of the Jews, as a long-awaited Messiah of Israel. And Matthew begins by demonstrating the qualifications, particularly the earthly qualifications of Jesus of Nazareth. He starts with the genealogy of 42 generations. He begins with the verse, this is a genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. But chronologically, it is Abraham who comes first and David who comes next. But for theological reasons, he switches the order and he says, he, this is a genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Implicitly arousing in our minds that Jesus came as a fulfillment of the Davidic covenant and in fulfilling the Davidic covenant, he also fulfills the Abrahamic covenant that was given. We don't have time to get into all of that, but Matthew begins by saying that right in the first sentence, that Jesus is a fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, and in fulfilling the Davidic covenant, he's also fulfilling the Abrahamic covenant as well. Now, he divides the entire genealogy into 42 generations, and he groups them into three sets of 14 each, from Abraham to David, David to exile, and exile to Christ. And when you look at these 14 Uh, sets of generations three times given you have a major covenant given in each of these 14 generations from Abraham to David you have the Abrahamic covenant that was given from David to the exile you have the Davidic covenant that was given and from the exile to Christ there was a new covenant that was given and so we must understand that's a that's a great insight that Matthew is giving us and he is also implicitly giving us a reason why he grouped them into these 14 generations uh, of three groups. We also must remember here, as we look at it, that uh, in David the family rose to power, at captivity they lost the power, and in Christ Jesus they're going to regain that power that has been lost. That's chapter one in the Gospel of Matthew. And then towards the end of chapter one, he gives a second proof of Jesus' right to the throne. He focuses on his heavenly origin, and he talks about the fact that his birth, although it happened in Bethlehem on this earth, he has a heavenly origin. His going forths have been from of old. And then he quotes Matthew, uh, sorry, uh, Isaiah seven, and he says, "The virgin shall be with child and give birth to a son, and he shall be called Emmanuel, which means God with us." Now, this is not some kind of a god some kind of a man who became God, or some kind of a man who tried to be God, or some kind of a demagogue, but this is God who really is with us. This is God in flesh. So here is Matthew's fulfillment formula. In every episode that he narrates about the life of Jesus, he quotes something or makes an allusion to some Old Testament prophecy or prediction and says, this happened so that what was written by such and such a prophet was fulfilled. Most of the times, the prophecies are not very direct, but he does make allusions to several Old Testament uh, prophecies. And he shows that Jesus Christ is a fulfillment of all of these prophecies. He is a fulfillment of all of these prophecies. In fact, if I were to sum up the whole book of Matthew in one word, I would use the word fulfillment. Jesus Christ is a fulfillment of the Old Testament. Jesus Christ is a fulfillment of the Davidic Covenant. Jesus Christ is a fulfillment of the Abrahamic Covenant. Jesus Christ is a true Israel. He fulfills Israel as well. And here in chapter 2, Matthew paints a little cameo about the childhood or uh, the, the infancy narratives about Jesus. And each of these four sections culminates in a passage or an allusion to the Old Testament. And today we're going to look at one passage that reveals to us three reasons why Jesus was born. Three reasons why Jesus was born. Matthew chapter 2 verses 1 through 12. Matthew chapter 2 verses 1 through 12. So in verses 1, 2, and 3, you'll see that Jesus was born to create a division among men. Jesus was born to create a division among men. Jesus Christ came into this world to create a divide in humanity based on how we respond to him. He came into this world to create a divide in humanity based on our response to him. You can never have a neutral stance towards Jesus. You either believe his claims and are following him or you are rejecting him. You can never be in a neutral stance towards Jesus. And Matthew presents this truth right from the beginning of his gospel, and he continues this theme throughout the gospel. In the first portion of our text, he shows that there is this divide that Christ brings by talking about two things, and let's go one by one. Firstly, he says the Magi, or the wise men, saw his star and sought to worship Jesus. Look at verses 1 and 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Behold wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying where is he who has been born king of the Jews for we saw his star and it uh, when it rose and have come to worship him Now the passage begins with the sentence now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king when was Jesus born when you look at the time uh, time markers that are given in the gospels for example he was born before the death of Herod the Great. Herod died in the spring of 4 BC. You also see the Gospel of Luke chapter 3, where uh, Luke says that he was born uh, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. Caesar, when, the, when Pontius Pilate was, the, uh, Pilate was the governor of Judea, and all those time markers that are given by the gospel writers, we can be pretty much sure, based on historical evidence as well, that he was born sometime around December 4 BC, or I'm sorry, December 5 BC, or January 4 BC, because Herod died in the spring of 4 BC. Josephus talks about it. He says there was an eclipse just before Herod died, and there was a Passover just after Herod died. So you're talking about 4 BC, where there was an eclipse on the 12th or the 13th of March, just before Herod died, and there was a Passover the 11th of April, just after Herod died. But Jesus was born before Herod died, so he must have been born sometime December 5 BC or January 4 BC. So when we celebrate Christmas on December 25th, it's not very far from when he, was, when he actually might have been born. So this is a sequence of events that would have happened. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in about 5 BC, or at the end of 5 BC, or the beginning of 4 BC. And almost immediately, magi, or wise men from the east, they showed up. And some people talk about them as having come a year after Jesus was born. No, no, that doesn't have any historical historical evidence to it. But they, I think, came immediately after Jesus was born. And almost immediately as they show up, uh, they were tricked by Herod, and Herod sends them uh, and says, go and worship him and tell me where he is born, so I also might go and worship him. Uh, And then uh, they they were warned uh, in a dream not to go back the same route to Herod, and then they take a different route, and they go back to their own country. So... Jesus was born in December 5 BC or January 4 BC. Now, the verse also tells us that wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Wise men or magi from the east came to Jerusalem. Who were these wise men? We should say right at the outset that these men were not kings as some tradition holds them to be, and their names are not recorded for us. Some people give three names for the kings. First of all, we can't be sure they were three people, uh, much less three names. And so that is not well grounded in history. I have not read any New Testament historian talk about the names of these three people. But these were people or these were men who were a priestly caste of, uh, from Mesopotamia or somewhere in the east, somewhere perhaps from Babylon. We are not told where they are from. They are famous for their learning. They are famous for their wisdom as well. They are very interested in subjects like astronomy and astrology. And when they observe the movement of stars, they make note of any strange movement that might be happening, any strange planetary movements, any strange movements in the stars. And when there is a strange movement in the stars, they would take that to be some kind of an omen. Now, they are seeing something that could not be identified, that had no precedent at all. They are seeing a star. Now, how did they come to Jerusalem? Yes, they have seen a star. This is a strange star. This is one of a kind. It has never happened before in history. But why did they come to Jerusalem seeing the star? Now, if you remember, the straight answer to this question, like uh, most answers that we don't have answer for, is that I don't know. But we just can speculate about what might have caused them to come to Jerusalem. Now, these were wise men who were diligent to discover signs and cosmic movements. And I'm pretty sure that they had a recourse to the holy books of Israel, particularly to the Old Testament. Because Babylon still remained a center for Jewish studies. You also talk about something called the Babylonian Talmud. You've heard of it, right? So uh, Babylon still remained a center for Jewish studies. And if they had any recourse to the Old Testament, they might have come across the prophecy of Balaam an early prophet from the east who had predicted that a star would march forth from Israel a star would march forth from Israel and it may be that they saw this phenomena they found this to be very very strange and they went to different religious people and scholars from different religious people but they only found the answer in the Old Testament or the religious books of Israel and so they figured out that there is somebody who is going to be born and he is called the king of the Jews. He is called the king of the Jews. This is not an ordinary king who is going to be born. This is a king who is worthy of worship, who is worthy of our homage as well. And so when you think and when you understand that a king is going to be born in a particular country, where else would you go? But it's capital. So they came straight to Jerusalem. And then they came and asked the question, where is this person born who is called the king of the Jews? who was called the king of the Jews. And the news spread around and they went straight to the palace. The Magi here come and ask this question, we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. We saw his star when it rose and we have come to worship him. The Magi's statement that they have the intention to worship the new king does not necessarily mean that they thought of Jesus as somebody who was divine. I don't think they had a full-blown Christology that here is a God-man and here is a hypostatic union and all of that, but they just wanted to pay homage. They just wanted to pay respects to a newborn king. Here, Matthew is using the Greek word proskuno. Proskuno is used about 13 times in the Gospel of Matthew, which is another translation for worship. It is to fall prostrate before somebody who is somebody higher than you, somebody more exalted, and to kiss the ground before the feet of that person. And here the Magi are saying, the wise men from the east, the Gentile people, they are coming and saying, we want to fall prostrate before this little baby who was born the king of the Jews, and we want to kiss the ground before his feet. Indirectly, these Gentile people are now coming and saying that we find our recourse, we find our rescue, we find our redemption in some sense in this king of the Jews who has been born. In this king of the Jews who has been born. And they call him the king of the Jews, which is a Gentile way of saying he is the Messiah. He is the Messiah. So the Magi saw the star and sought to worship Jesus. In contrast to that, Herod and Jerusalem were troubled at the news of the newborn king. Herod and Jerusalem were troubled at the news of the newborn king. Look at verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. He was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Now this passage in it is entirely full of contrasts. You have a contrast between Herod and Jesus. You have a contrast between Herod and the Magi. You have a contrast between King Herod and King Jesus. Several contrasts in this passage. And so in my outline homiletically, I've tried to retain those contrasts as well. Please follow along as we go. So firstly, the Magi, looking at the star, they sought him and wanted to worship him. In contrast, Herod and the people of Jerusalem were troubled about the birth of the newborn king. Now, who was Herod? Herod was the king of Palestine. He was the king of Israel. He was called Herod the Great. He ruled from 37 BC to 4 BC, the spring of 4 BC. You're listening? Okay. (laughs) All right, so from 37 BC to 4 BC. He was a ruthless tyrant. He would easily kill one of his own sons. He killed one of his wives as well. And he would depose any high priest. If he thought that any of these people were conspiring against his throne, he would not leave any of them. He was hungry for power. He was, he was bloodthirsty. And here the thought of an immediate threat to, to his throne that there was a king who was born in his own country who was called the king of the Jews, the promised Messiah would certainly have troubled him, would certainly have troubled his entire court as well. Now the reason is, Herod, you see, was not a Jewish person. He was of an Edomian descent. He was uh, a descendant of Esau, not of Jacob. But the Messiah comes from the lineage of Jacob, particularly from the tribe of David. But Herod was of an Edomian descent, and to ingratiate himself to the Jews, he did two things. Number one, he went and married a woman from the Maccabees or the Hasmonean dynasty the Hasmonean dynasty were the people who were called also called the Maccabees remember when we were studying the book of Daniel we saw that Babylon ruled first and Medo-Persia and then came Greece after Alexander the Great died his kingdom was divided among his four generals and that merged into two the Ptolemaic and the Seleucid Empire remember that between these two empires was sandwiched the nation of Israel and these two nations were fighting against one another Antiochus the Fourth Epiphanes who prefigures the antichrist who's going to come in the end he's the one uh, he's the king of the Seleucid dynasty who came and warred against Israel and persecuted the Jews and the people who resisted that movement were called the Maccabees and they brought freedom to this nation of Israel from the Greeks and they ruled for about 100 years and just to ingratiate the Jews, just to pacify the Jews, this, this man, Herod, of Edomian descent, who was power-hungry, who, uh, who was a brilliant guy in terms of administration, he went and married from this family of the Maccabees or the Hasmoneans just to pacify them and become the king. Secondly, he also did something to pacify the Jews. Can you guess that? He built the temple. He didn't build the temple, he was refurbishing or uh, renovating the temple. The temple was built by Zerubbabel, Uh, it was finished in about 515 BC and he started renovating it and in fact it came to be known in history as Herod's temple. So the Jews were kind of impressed by this but the Jews also saw him as a usurper and and Herod did not like it. And uh, you see here that when he understands that here is somebody who is born the king of the Jews, it is an immediate threat to his throne and he immediately sees that there is some trouble and Herod is troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Now I sometimes begin to wonder, in fact I was wondering yesterday as I was looking at the passage, why was Jerusalem troubled with him as well? Herod was troubled, you can see that, but why was Jerusalem troubled with him? Jerusalem was troubled with him because every time there was a threat to the throne of Herod, he just showed his cruelty on the people and citizens of Jerusalem. And now there's one more threat to the throne. Here is born the king of the Jews. Jerusalem was disturbed wondering what might Herod do to the citizens of Jerusalem. So Herod was troubled and Jerusalem was troubled. Herod and Jerusalem were troubled at the news of the newborn king. The contrast that Matthew is setting up here, right at the beginning of chapter 2, is very, very clear. On the one hand, you have the Magi who came from afar and at a great sacrifice to find, to seek, and to worship the King of the Jews. On the other hand, are Herod, the, the religious clergy, and the people of Jerusalem. Herod, at extreme, he seeks to kill the baby Jesus. The others merely appear to ignore him. Here is a point that Matthew is trying to make here, and here is the application. Whenever men come face-to-face with Jesus, they must decide if they will fall down and worship him, or they must decide if they will reject him. Whenever men come face-to-face with Jesus, they must decide if they will fall down and worship him, or if they will reject him. As you listen to me, my friend, let me say this to you. You may have been born in a Christian family and you may be thinking that I'm just maintaining a neutral stance towards Jesus. The Bible says and Matthew says in particular, it's just not possible. You're either with Jesus or you have rejected Jesus. You're either with Jesus or you have rejected Jesus. There is no neutral stance towards Jesus. You're either in the kingdom or you're either in the kingdom of darkness. You know, in Colossians 1.13, it's fascinating that when he talks about, when Paul talks about redemption, he says, he, he has transferred us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of the son he loves, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. So you can't have one foot in the kingdom of God and one foot in the kingdom of devil. That's just not possible. You can never have a neutral stance towards Jesus You either fall down and worship him for who he is, recognizing who he is this Christmas season, or you are rejecting him. So in verses 1, 2, and 3, we saw that Jesus was born to create a divide, to create a division among men. Then there's a second reason why Jesus was born, or second reason for the birth of Jesus, according to this passage, and that is in verses 4 through 6. They say that Jesus came as the Messiah to fulfill God's promises to mankind. Jesus came as the Messiah to fulfill God's promises to mankind. Matthew says that the wait is over. God's deliverance of his people has begun with the arrival of Jesus, and that's what we call as Christmas, his first advent. In explaining this, Matthew paints a contrast again by saying two things. Firstly, he says, Herod did not have any qualifications to lead God's people. Look at the contrast he's setting up again. Herod did not have any qualifications to lead God's people. Look at verse 4. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them whether Christ was to be born. Herod assembled all of Israel's leaders to investigate the Magi's announcement further. And so the chief priests were mainly from the Sadducees. By the way, uh, around the intertestamental period, as we call it, between Malachi and Matthew, the time of about 430 years, uh, uh, during that period, there arose several sects within Judaism. And they had different theological orientations. One sect was called Pharisees. The other one was called Sadducees. You know, the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection, bodily resurrection. And that's why some theologians there, they are, say that they are sad, you see. So, uh, so there were the Pharisees, there were the Sadducees, then there were the Essenes as well. There were the Zealots. And all these people had different theological orientations. The Pharisees were people who were the lawyers, who interpreted the law. And the Sadducees were people who who used to fill the office of the chief priest and the high priest. And so these two groups never got along with each other. But here, Herod brought these two people and he inquired of them is what Matthew is saying. Probably he inquired of them separately as to where the Messiah would be born. But the fact of the matter is this, that Herod knew very well, Although he was ruling Israel, listen to me carefully, please. Although he was ruling Israel, although he was ruling the entire Palestine, Herod knew very well in his heart of hearts that although he was a king, he was not the Messiah. He did not possess the qualifications. He was a ruthless tyrant, and not just that, he was not a Jew at all. But what is the difference between being a king and being the Messiah? Now listen very carefully, please. The, the word, there is a Hebrew word called mashak. It has a guttural sound. It is difficult to make. I, I can't make that, but let me, let me just say it as mashak. So the word mashak means just to take oil with your hand and uh, rub it or smear it on your forehead. And that can be translated into English as anoint. So in the Old Testament, who were the classes of people who were uh, anointed? Kings were anointed and therefore Saul was anointed, David was anointed, and who else was anointed in the Old Testament? Priests were anointed. So kings were anointed and priests were anointed, and anybody who was called, uh, who was anointed was an anointed one, an anointed one, or small m, Messiah, because Messiah was an anointed one. So from the word mashach comes the word Mashiach, which means the anointed one or an anointed one. So kings were called Mashiachs and priests were also called Mashiachs in the Old Testament. But particularly kings were called, who came from the Davidic line, were called messiahs. Because they would protect the borders of Israel. They would at any cost try to make peace. And they would try to bring peace throughout Israel and have borders in peace as well. When you come to the New Testament, the Greek word For the word Mashiach is the word Christos, which is translated into English as Christ. So when you say Jesus Christ, uh, Christ is not as a last name, although sometimes it's used that way. There's nothing wrong with that. But it means Jesus, the anointed one, or Jesus, the Messiah, the Messiah. He is the anointed one. He is the rightful heir to the throne of David. And that's why Matthew gives the entire genealogy to prove that he is the only one who's the rightful heir to the throne. Herod was not the one, and he knew it very well. Herod was not the Messiah who would lead God's people. Secondly, in contrast, Jesus fulfilled. Jesus fulfilled. Prophecy and was qualified to be the ruler of God's people. He fulfilled prophecy, he was qualified to be the ruler of God's people. Look at verses 5 and 6. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, uh, the reason why they specify Bethlehem of Judea is because there's another Bethlehem in, uh, in Israel. It was in Zebulun, so there's Bethlehem of Zebulun in contrast to the Bethlehem of Judea. So they say in Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophet... And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. The scribes and the teachers of the law, they knew exactly where the Messiah was going to be born. For they knew the scriptures very well. And I wouldn't be surprised if they had most of Old Testament memorized as well. And when... This question was asked by Herod as to where the Messiah would be born, the Messiah would be born. They immediately said he would be born in Bethlehem of Judea as was foretold by prophet by the prophet Micah. And this quotation comes from Micah chapter 2 where Micah the prophet prophesied that there would be a ruler who will come out of Bethlehem. A ruler who would come out of Bethlehem, who would be the shepherd of Israel, who will lead Israel, who will be the shepherd of Israel. Now here, who is the shepherd of Israel? It is Yahweh, the Lord God of Israel. And here it is a clear affirmation of the divinity of Christ or the the deity of Christ saying, the shepherd of Israel here now is God in flesh. Jesus is now being given the name, the shepherd of Israel. This man is God in in flesh. Now, whenever there is a quotation from the Old Testament in the New Testament, listen carefully. The Old Testament, uh, New Testament writers are not simply proof texting to advance their argument. They are bringing bringing in the entire context to show that the entire context holds good here where they are quoting the particular passage. So when you go back to Micah chapter 5 and read particularly from chapter 4 verse 6 through chapter 5 verse 5, you will see that the passage is concerned with the announcement of Babylonian captivity. There's the announcement that Micah is making that Babylonian captivity is coming soon and death and destruction will accompany the invasion of the land. But the prophecy quickly advances to tell how God would later deliver Israel after the captivity uh, from the oppressing nations and he would one day bring from this least expected place of Bethlehem a ruler, a ruler who would be the shepherd of God's people, a ruler who would be the shepherd of God's people. In the time of Herod the Great, when Herod was ruling, Babylonian captivity was history. It was already done. But then the fact of the matter is, after Babylon came Medo-Persia. After Medo-Persia came Greece. After that came Rome. And now they were under the bondage of the Roman Empire. And so the Bible prophesied about this Messiah who would champion the cause of people, who would dethrone the foreign oppressing empires. And I suspect that Herod would have soon realized, looking at this, that his day was the right setting of this prophecy to be fulfilled. But we know very well, and Herod himself knew very well, that he was not the one who would fulfill prophecy. He was not a righteous man. He was not even a Jew. Now, if you look at Micah chapter 5 verse 2 very closely, the prophecy also tells us towards the end of it about this particular ruler. It says, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. When you put together other prophecies that were given about the Messiah, it becomes very clear that it reveals that the Messiah was not somebody who had his beginning in Bethlehem, but this Messiah was pre-existent. His goings forth have been from of old. He didn't have a beginning in Bethlehem, although in some sense in time he did, but his goings forth have been from of old, from from ancient of days. Uh, his contemporary Isaiah in chapter 9 verse 6 uh, gives the title we just heard that this morning everlasting father and his name simply called wonderful counselor mighty God everlasting father and in Daniel chapter 7 if you remember we saw one like the son of man one like the son of man who was given all dominion glory and power and majesty so we, we when we look at all of these things the answer the scribes gives, give to Herod is that uh Jesus is the promised Messiah who will be born in Bethlehem and whose goings forth have been from of old, from ancient of days. And this is why Matthew is seeing it fit that Gentiles, these Magi from the East, should come and worship him. Should come and worship him. Now, when you look at the Old Testament, let me just push the argument a little further because here... Matthew is not directly quoting from Micah. He is also alluding to other prophecies. When you look at some of the Old Testament prophecies, we are here concerned as to why Magi from the East came and gave gifts to this one who was born, the king of the Jews. In other words, the question that we need to ask is, what is the significance of the whole event? When you go back to Micah's contemporary Isaiah in chapter 49, there's a prophecy about the restoration of Israel after the captivity. And it begins to focus on the image of somebody called the servant of the Lord. The servant of the Lord, although the phrase the servant of the Lord is used of different things in the book of Isaiah. Here in this particular passages, the relevant passages particularly, from 49 through to 53, it is used of the Messiah himself. And so the servant of the Lord, the Messiah, will not only restore the fortunes of Israel, but he will also be a light to the nations. And he will bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And this prophecy was fulfilled in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 7 of chapter 49, it adds that kings and princes will bow down before this chosen one, the servant. And the idea of homage from different nations to this particular king is also repeated in verse 23. It is likely that the complete fulfillment will come at the end of the age in the millennial kingdom when kings literally would come and bow down before the person of Jesus. But this Gentile people, people from the East, the wise men coming and giving their gifts and paying their respects and homage and worshipping Jesus is at least a preview and a foretaste of what is to come in the millennial kingdom. You know, when you push it a little bit further, I told you the section of Isaiah 49 through 53, we see it as a servant's songs, and the servant there is the Messiah himself. In Isaiah 53, Isaiah clearly looked forward to what the Messiah's mission is in his first coming. Remember Isaiah 53 verses 3 to 5, he was wounded for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The... The chastisement that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, each one of us to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now you see the shepherd and the sheep language here as well in Isaiah 53. Jesus came to fulfill this prophecy as well. In fact, somebody mentioned this morning that he came to die. He came for the purpose of dying to redeem mankind, to redeem you and I. And the chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes, by his wounds, we are healed. By his wounds, we are healed. You know, when we look at the modern day world, politicians promise us a lot. Politicians promise us a lot. We give them our valuable vote and we elect them only to find out that what Lord Acton has said is absolutely right, that power tends to corrupt. Can you finish it? Absolute power corrupts absolutely. Power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Donna Brazil once said this about politics. I think people involved in politics make good actors. Now, this is not to make a mockery of anybody. This is just a quotation as it is. I think people in politics make good actors. Acting and politics both involve fooling people. People like being fooled by actors. When you get right down to it, they probably like being fooled by politicians even more. A skillful actor will make you think, but a skillful politician will never make you think. A skillful actor will make you think, but a skillful politician will never make you think. The point is, the rulers of this world promise us lofty things, particularly things like Ache I'm not making a political statement here. This is a theological statement. But the fact of the matter is, this Christmas tells us that there is only one who was born to bring in that universal reign of peace and righteousness. And it begins with peace in our hearts first, when we have peace with God through the redemption that he brings us. And in his second coming, he is going to bring a universal reign of peace and righteousness, which no ruler, no earthly king, no prime minister can give us. Jesus came to fulfill prophecy. Jesus, as the Messiah, came to fulfill God's prophecy. You know, Isaac Watts wrote, and you may have sung that song, uh, you may have sang that song over the last one or two months. He says, No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow, far as the curse is found, far as the curse is found, far as, far as the curse is found. So, so far, we've learned two things very quickly about why Jesus was born. Jesus was born to create a division among men, number one. Number two, Jesus came as a Messiah to fulfill God's promises to mankind. Then there's a third thing we need to understand, and that is in verses 7 through 12. They say that Jesus was born to be worshipped by all nations. He was born to be worshipped. By all nations, Jesus is to be worshipped not just by the Jews but by all the nations of the world as represented by the wise men from the east. As represented by the wise men from the east, and once again, Matthew is painting a contrast here. Let me just see the contrast in a couple of things. Number one, Herod, concerned only for his throne, saw Jesus as a threat. Look at verses 7 and 8 very quickly. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Now, in this story, there are two kinds of people who do not want to worship Jesus the Messiah. The first is a kind of people who simply have nothing to do with Jesus, they don't want to have anything to do with Jesus. He's a non entity in their lives. And this group is represented by the chief priests and the scribes. Remember in verse 4, when Herod gathered together the chief priests and the scribes, he inquired of them where the Messiah is going to be born. They could have gone along with the Magi. They knew where he was born. In fact, the Magi did not know they had some kind of a divine... uh, a divine star that led them uh, to divine sign that led them to this particular place called Jerusalem. They didn't know exactly where he would be born. The scribes knew. The, the chief priests knew. The the teachers of the law knew. But Jesus was a non-entity in their lives. They didn't want to have anything to do with him. They did not take that quick step about seven miles to Bethlehem to go and see for themselves where He was born, and who was born there. And secondly, notice in verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, we saw that he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. In other words, the first group is disinterested and not interested, but Herod was hostile to the birth of Jesus. Herod was hostile to the birth of Jesus. The second kind of people who don't want to worship Jesus is the kind that is deeply threatened by him. The first people are not interested, the second people are deeply threatened by him. And that is the story of Herod. And so today we have among us these two kinds of people as well. People who are not interested to know about Jesus and people who are threatened by him as well. As you sit here this morning, if you are in one of these groups, people who are not interested or people who are threatened by Jesus, may I plead with you this morning, this Christmas season, to take Jesus seriously to be in the camp of the Magi, who went and searched for themselves and worshipped and bowed down before Jesus. So we see here that Herod, concerned only for his throne, saw Jesus as a threat. And lastly, we see that the Magi, responding to divine guidance, worshipped Jesus and gave him gifts. Look at verses 9-12. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold the star that they had seen, When it rose, went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way." Now notice here that Matthew does not tell us a story of shepherds coming and visiting baby Jesus. It is for him the first people who came and worshipped Jesus according to Matthew were the Gentile people. Now, right at the beginning of the gospel, he's opening up the possibility that the gospel is going to go to the Gentiles. And Jesus is not just the Messiah of the Jews, but he's a savior of all the nations. And all the nations would be included in his kingdom. Later on in Matthew, uh, towards the end of it, uh, he is going to say that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. You do it first in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So the gospel and the news about Jesus Christ will go to the ends of the earth, and people from the ends of the earth will come into his kingdom. We see a preview of that right in this passage. In the gospel of Matthew, once again, Jesus says, that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places in the kingdom with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. You have people coming from all over the world into his kingdom, and you see a preview of that here. But there are four things that Magi did as part of their worship very quickly. First, the Magi ascribed authority to Christ by calling him king of the Jews. In verse 2, they came and said, where is he who was born the king of the Jews? Secondly, the Magi ascribed dignity to him by falling down before him in verse 11. When they came into the house, they fell down, is what the verse says. Falling to the ground, like I said, is something that you do to somebody who is much higher than you are. And they saw an infant, they saw a baby here, and yet they fell down and worshipped him. They fell down before him. And I had this thought, I was carrying my little baby and pacing the floor in in my home, when I was thinking about this passage, I, I got a thought that it is this little a baby that these magi came and worshipped. It is this small an infant that this uh, these magi came and worshipped. What an insight, or what obedience to God's guidance. Thirdly, there's a joy in these ascriptions of authority and dignity as well. It says when they saw the star, they rejoiced with great joy. They rejoiced with great joy. And lastly, they say that they gave special gifts to Jesus. They gave three gifts. They gave uh, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. There's no symbolism here. A lot of people try to bring symbolism. The text does not warrant such a thing, but These are costly, expensive gifts that could be given to a king. And they certainly would have been welcomed by Joseph and Mary who were poor. And in God's sovereignty, they would have paid their way to go to Egypt and come back as well. That is also a possibility, but there's no symbolism is what I I think. Uh, These are just expensive gifts, one that baby Jesus, who is the king of the Jews, deserves. And so, may this Christmas, may uh, the truth of God... Of this text in particular, waken us for a desire of Christ himself. And finally, the text says, being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another means. They departed to their own country by another means. So the point is, the Magi responding to divine guidance, (laughs) worshiped Jesus, and gave him gifts. So what's the point of this morning's sermon? The whole passage basically says that Jesus was born to create a division among men to fulfill God's promises and bring salvation to all nations. The rulers were hostile, the Jewish religious readers were indifferent, but Gentiles welcomed him and Gentiles worshipped him. Thank you for your patience and may the Lord bless you this Christmas season. Let's pray. Father God, we want to thank you for this time. We want to thank you for the writings of Matthew. Thank you for this clear and lucid writing by one of your apostles about why Jesus came into this world. We saw from the text that he was born to create a division among mankind. As we live in this world, we will face opposition because there are enemies of the kingdom Help us to live sensibly. Help us to live righteously in this world of evil, O oh Lord. And Christmas also tells us that Jesus was born to fulfill God's promises. And he's the only one who can fulfill the promises and the prophecies of the Old Testament. There's no ruler who can bring about um, any good in this world. It is only Jesus who brings to fulfillment all of God's promises for mankind. And we also realize that he came to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And we want to thank you that we sit here today as saved people. We pray, O Lord, that um, these truths we may cherish in our hearts this Christmas season and continue to live for the king who has been born, the king of the Jews. And not just the king of the Jews, but the king of the whole world as well. We submit the rest of the activities of today into your hands, particularly the men's meeting. We pray for your blessing and your hand of blessing upon it. We want to thank you for everything in Jesus' name.